You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we need not just physical eyes to see your word and to read it, but we need spiritual understanding and insight, which only you can grant us through your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would send your spirit to be our teacher this morning and that your word might be our guide and our rule and that your glory might be our everlasting concern. May you be honored here amongst and through your people as we study your word together, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have now reached the end of John chapter 9, and of course this is the end of the account of the man born blind. It's been a few weeks coming. And uh, we have seen a lot of things with this man come full circle in a lot of different ways. Um, One, we have seen this man grow in his understanding of Jesus. He has gone from somebody who simply knew Jesus as a man who was called Jesus, to somebody who is now worshiping him as God. That's quite a transition if you think about it. Uh, Starting off not knowing anything about him, having no commitments to him, at the beginning of this chapter, this man now understands that Jesus is not just a man called Jesus. He is the Son of Man worthy of worship. And so he worshiped Jesus and uh, has believed in him now. A second transition or full circle that this man has has come through is his not only his understanding of Jesus, but also going from a position of unbelief to belief. Beginning of this chapter, he's an unbeliever. He's just somebody in spiritual darkness. He has no commitment to Christ. He's not a follower of Christ, not a disciple of Christ. Uh, probably had heard of Jesus, maybe heard of his miracle working power. Maybe he had overheard in the temple some of his teaching. But as far as we know, there is no commitment and the, certain, the man is certainly not a believer. But by the end of the chapter, he gives that confession, Lord, I believe. And not a fake belief like John 2, John 6, and John 8, but a ju- genuine and true belief that results in a heart of worship toward Jesus. And third, the man has gone from a state of blindness to a state of sight. And that, of course, has not just been physical blindness to physical sight, but spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. This man has been given his ability to see, or given given an ability to see since he was born blind, but that physical healing that has taken him from blindness to sight is really a, a signal or a, a sign that points to deeper and more profound spiritual realities. The spiritual reality that Jesus has opened not only his physical eyes, but his spiritual eyes as well. And now the man sees things that he never saw before. Spiritually speaking, he sees Christ. This man, has, this man now can not only see what other people cannot see, this man sees that other people cannot see. He sees spiritual realities that the Pharisees were oblivious to, and the man sees now that the Pharisees cannot even see. He sees their blindness. Think of the transition that this man has gone through. The man who was born blind at one time lived his life 
thinking that he was a blind man among the sighted, thinking everybody else can see, and I'm the blind man. Then there came a point when he realized he was a blind man living among other blind men. And now he is a sighted man living among the blind. Nobody else has changed. Everybody else has remained the same. But what has changed in the passage? The blind man has changed. Not just his physical sight, but listen, something has happened in the heart and the mind of the blind man that now he is the man who sees and he realizes he's living among a bunch of spiritually blind men. So that brings us to verse 39. And now this is the end of the chapter. Verses 39 through 41 are some very important verses. They're sort of a bit enigmatic, a bit mysterious, but they're important because in verses 39 through 41, now we get Jesus' interpretation of this miracle. John does not leave us to interpret the miracle on our own. John gives us Jesus' teaching about the significance of the miracle. As we've worked our way through, it has been difficult to not notice the parallels between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. And we have seen some of the ways in which those those blindnesses are alike, in which those uh, sights are alike, spiritual sight and physical sight. But now we get to the end of the miracle, and we have a couple of sentences, a couple of statements here that really explain for us the significance of the miracle itself. John did this on other occasions. You remember back in John chapter 5 when the man was healed at the pool of Bethesda? And that healing, immediately after it, Jesus gives that long discourse, the Divine Son discourse, where He explains the significance of that miracle that He did on the Sabbath day. And then we have it in John chapter 6. After Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and fed the multitude, we have the Bread of Life discourse where Jesus explains the significance of that miracle of feeding the multitudes with bread and fish. So here we have it in John chapter 9. We have a miracle. We've seen all the reactions to the miracle. And now we get the interpretation of the Lord Jesus regarding what the significance of this miracle really is. So as we work our way through these three verses, we're going to notice one thing in each verse, three things that this miracle is intended to reveal to us. First, it is intended to reveal to us the judgment of God upon unbelief. The judgment of God upon unbelief, and that's in verse 39. Second, the miracle is intended to reveal the, the blindness of unbelief. That's in verse 40. And then lastly, the consequences of unbelief in verse 41. The judgment of God on unbelief, the blindness of unbelief, and then the consequences of unbelief. So let's work our way through it, beginning in verse 39. Then Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Now there doesn't seem to be any indication that there is a break between verses 38 and 39. The man worshipped Jesus, and I believe that it was right then without any period of break that Jesus begins to explain to all of those who are listening. You're going to see in a moment there are Pharisees present. He explains to all of those who are listening the significance of what he has just done and the significance of this man's worship of him. It's all contained in verses 39 through 41. So there's no, there's no break in time. This is Jesus now explaining the significance of the miracle. And look what he says. For, for judgment I have come into this world. Now I want you to stop there for just a second. That sounds at first glance as if it is a contradiction of something that Jesus has said on other occasions. I would remind you back in John chapter 3 verse 17, right after John 3.16, the familiar verse about God loving the world and sending His Son so that whoever believes might not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, and this is the words of Jesus as well, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. This 3.17, God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world. Jesus says in John 12, verse 47, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So you have two statements. His Father did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. I do not judge you, for I didn't come to judge the world. Then we have in John chapter 9, verse 39, this statement, For judgment, 
I have come into the world. Is that a contradiction? Let me remind you of John chapter 5 where Jesus said, not even the Father judges anyone, but He has committed all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Father, even or Son, even as they honor the Father, because you does not honor the Son does not honor the Father either. So we have a couple of statements where Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but then we have John 9.37 where Jesus said, for judgment I've come into the world. Is this some sort of a contradiction or, or how are we to understand this? Let me try and walk you through it this way. This is the best way to understand it. It's not a contradiction. These are not contradictory ideas. These are complementary truths. These are two sides of the same coin. Let me explain it this way. The purpose or the reason for the Son coming into the world his very first time was not as judge. We realize that, right? He didn't come to judge the world at his first coming. What did he come to do at his first coming? To save the world. He came to save the world. He came as Savior, not as judge, with his first coming. So in one sense, his first coming was not for the purpose of bringing judgment. And this is what the Jews expected in a Messiah. They expected that when the Messiah would come would come back, he would set up a throne and execute judgment upon unbelievers, upon Rome, upon Gentile nations, upon all people, that he would call everybody in and execute judgments. And the Jews, because they were the chosen people, would get off scot-free. Jesus, correcting that understanding of his first coming, says, I have not come my first time to execute the judgment that you were expecting. So in one sense, he did not come for judgment, but listen, in another sense, his coming resulted in judgment. So though it was not his intention to come as judge, the result of his coming is judgment. Let me give you an illustration. When you turn on the light in a dark room, what does the light do? It really exposes what the darkness hides, does it not? And it confirms what you suspect is true. So if you have a room where something is going on or something is there and you don't know about it and the darkness hides it, but when you turn on the light, the light comes and by by consequent of the light being there, the darkness and the deeds of darkness is exposed. It was the same thing with the sun. When the light came into the world to bear witness to the truth, he did not come for the purpose of judging. But listen, as a result of his coming, judgment inevitably follows. It must follow. It has to follow because those who reject him as savior get him as judge. So the result of his coming is judgment, though the intention of his coming was salvation. When he comes back a second time, he will not be intending anything except for judgment. He will come back as judge. But the fact that he has come the first time as a light and as a savior, the rejection of that light confirms men in their judgment. And the coming of light, that light of the, of Christ into the world exposed the unbelief of men and it exposed their condemnation. That's why Jesus said, following chapter 3, verse 17 in John's Gospel, where he says, I didn't come to judge, Jesus says, men are condemned already. I don't need to condemn men. My very presence as the light reveals their condemnation. And how is their condemnation revealed? That when the light came into the world, men loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved a lie rather than the truth. And they turned to lies and to darkness and away from the truth. And that act of him coming in resulted in them confirming their judgment and exposing their condemnation and their judgment. So though he did not come with the intention of judging, the result of his coming is judgment. So that's what he means when he says, for judgment I came into the world. What type of judgment is Jesus speaking of? There is a type of judgment that is described here in the next two phrases. Look at verse 39. For judgment I came into this world, here's the judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Now, we're obviously not talking about physical realities here, but spiritual realities. Jesus is not describing people who can see physically, but then are made blind by his coming into the world. He is describing here spiritual realities, and that's how we are intended to take it. Furthermore, he is describing those, not those who actually can see spiritually, but those who profess to be able to see. 
So the end of verse 39, where Jesus describes those who can see or those who do see, he is describing the same group as he does in verse 41 with the phrase, you say we see. So there is a group, when he came into the world, there is a group who did not have the ability to see anything. They were the blind. To them he gave sight, both physical and spiritual. Then there was also a group who, when he came into the world, said, we see. We don't need sight. I don't need vision. We don't need a physician, and we don't need a savior. We are fine with our own righteousness. Thank you very much. Those men who see, quote unquote, or who say that they see, they became blind. So there are two groups of people. The first group, those who were blind and then were given the ability to see, you could talk about it physical terms or, or, or physical, we could talk about that physically or we could talk about that spiritually. Either way, it works. Because remember, the physical miracle of giving sight to the blind was intended to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah that when he came into the world, a light would shine on people and those who live in darkness would see a great light. So when Jesus giving physical sight to the blind was intended to say to the Jews, excuse me, what this man is doing indicates that he is the Messiah and that he is your God in human flesh. Because the Old Testament said the Messiah would do this and the Old Testament says only God can give sight. That's what they should have gleaned from this miracle. But they didn't glean that at all. That old, This miracle of giving sight to the blind was intended to show to them that the Messiah opens the spiritual eyes of, as well of people so that those who do not see, who are blind, who live in darkness spiritually and physically, that they would see a great light, that they would see and receive their sight. So it's spiritual sight that's being described. Then on the other side of the coin, there is a spiritual, spiritual supposed sight that is being described that people do not have that they're actually blind, but they say they see, they think they see, and Jesus says those become or are made blind. Now what's being described here? What is being described is what theologians refer to as a judicial blindness or a judicial hardening. Do you realize that God hides His truth from those who reject it? And that that is an act of judgment that God does upon people who will turn from light to darkness? It's called a judicial blindness, a judicial hardening. Jesus is describing it here. He describes it again. We have a big passage on it in John chapter 12. Uh, after the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, there's a passage in John 12 where he quotes from the Old Testament in Isaiah where God describes this judicial hardening, this, ju- this judgment of blindness that he put upon people. It is, it is almost as if God says, look, you want to turn from, from light to darkness? Okay, you want darkness? I'll give you darkness. You want to not see light? I'll make sure that you don't see any light. And the people to uh, the people who turn away from light and turn to darkness get less and less light and more and more darkness. It is a judicial act of God where he whereby he hides his truth from people who will not embrace it and will not accept it. They reject it and they show that they have no love for the truth and instead they love a lie and they refuse to be saved and the judicial act of God the judgment upon them is that they grow blind so that they cannot see the truth even more. They More and more darkness and less and less light. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus describes this very thing. At this time, Jesus said, now listen to this carefully. Listen to how he describes this. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Do you hear that? The Son praised the Father that the Father had hidden truth from certain people and revealed that truth to other people. That was a judicial act upon the Pharisees. 
an act of God's judgment upon them. Here were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The wise and intelligent. The intellectuals. The doctors. The learned. The teachers. And Jesus said, I praise you that you have hidden these truths from them and that you have stead and revealed them to whom? To fishermen and tax collectors and harlots and the nothings of the world. Because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who perish. But to us, the not many wise, it is what? It is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. We see it. We understand it. There's Jesus thanking the Father for hiding truth from the wise and the intelligent and revealing it to babes. Then Jesus said this. Listen, Matthew chapter 11, verse 26. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Did you catch that? It pleased the Father to hide His truth from those who would not embrace it. That is pleasing to God to bring that judgment upon those who hate the truth and love a lie. It was pleasing in the Lord's sight. So yes, Father, for this way it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. End quote. So, who knows the Father? Only those to whom the Son wishes to reveal the Father. And if the Son does not wish to reveal the Father to an individual, that person cannot and will not come to know the Father because they can only be known through the Son. So no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. And nobody can know the Father unless the Son wills to reveal the Father to that person. This is the judicial act of God whereby He sends a blindness upon people who will not embrace the truth and who hate the truth and love instead a lie so as they will not be saved. Listen, there is nobody so blind as those who will not see the truth. Who will not see. And there is nobody so dangerous in their blindness as people who think they see but they cannot. Right? What would you think of an airline pilot who was convinced he could see but you knew he couldn't? Would you be excited about getting on that plane? You would be excited about that. How about a taxi driver who was convinced he had perfect sight, right? Several years ago, before I got these, driving down the road all the time, I was surprised at how uh, less clear the road signs were for a long period of time. I argued with my wife. I said, I don't need glasses. I don't need glasses. And she'd say, well, wait until uh, you tell me when you can read that sign coming up. And so I'd wait and it'd be right about the front of the car. And I would, if I could read the whole thing before it got there, she said, you need glasses. I said, I don't need glasses. I can see just fine. And then when I got glasses, I realized I couldn't see fine at all. There is nobody so blind as those who refuse to see the truth, and there is nobody so dangerous in their blindness as people who think they can see but they cannot. That is the Pharisees. We see. And Jesus said, you are blind leaders of the blind. You are blind men leading other blind men into ditches. That's dangerous. That's the judicial hardening act of God, that judicial blindness, where if you turn away from the truth, God will say, you want darkness? You love darkness? I will confirm you in that decision. And I will give you more and more darkness. What did God do to Pharaoh? People often say, no, 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 no. It was Pharaoh who hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the Bible also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Over and over and over again in the book of Exodus, you read, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, the result of which was that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because when Pharaoh turned away from the truth, God said, I'll give you more darkness. And then Pharaoh went into the darkness and said he hardened his heart and resisted the truth. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the result of that was that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And the result of that was that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it was just a vicious circle until Pharaoh was destroyed. That is the dangerous, that is the danger of unbelievers sitting in a congregation or worship service week after week after week and not responding rightly to the truth. 
Because every time the truth is preached, it does one of two things. Every time the gospel is heard, it does one of two things. It either hardens the heart of the impenitent sinner, or it softens the heart of the impenitent sinner. One of those two things is always happening. The gospel never has no effect. It always has some effect. It either softens the heart of the hearer, or it hardens the heart of the hearer. But it will always do one of those two things. And the danger of people who think they are believers, who insist that they are believers, but refuse to acknowledge that they are blind, sitting in a worship service week after week and hearing Scripture read and Scripture preached and Scripture sung, is that it continues to harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart. And every time you and I respond to light and to truth with disobedience and rejection, anytime you do that, you harden your own heart. And God will judge the unbeliever who turns away from the truth and turns to darkness by giving them more blindness. That is the judgment of God. For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, that the blind may see. But here's the judgment, that those who think they see and say they see do not see. They are blinded. They're blinded because they insist that they can see. That's the first thing that this whole miracle, and we've seen this happen in John 9, haven't we? We've seen the man who was blind, he sees. Physically, spiritually, it's all open and obvious to him now, and he bows down and worships. But what about the Pharisees? They thought they saw... And they've been made blind. They cannot see anything. And that this miracle has revealed that. It has revealed the condemnation that they are under and the judgment that they face for they, because they have rejected the truth. The second thing that the miracle reveals, and this is in verse 40, is the miracle reveals the blindness of unbelief. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Why don't you notice something here? What were the Pharisees doing at this encounter? Remember, this is after some time, after Jesus heard that they had put him out, he found them. So this is, this is not, this is not taking place in front of the council of the Pharisees. This is not taking, as best we know, taking place inside the temple. Jesus sought this man out and found him, and who's with him? The Pharisees. I read that and I thought to myself, can Jesus go anywhere without a Pharisee in tow? What were they doing? Do you realize that the Pharisees hounded our Lord everywhere he went when he was in Jerusalem? Everywhere. And you know why they did that? They so opposed him, they were waiting for him to make some mess up, some mistake, to say something out of, out of doctrinally, uh, out of orthodox doctrinally. They were waiting for him to make some claim or to do something that they could accuse him of. That is why they watched him and they waited him and even in the last week of his life, they went up to him on three separate occasions and asked him questions, trying to trip him up. They hounded him wherever he went. Can you imagine serving the Lord in life and ministry, where everywhere you go publicly, you have somebody following you whose sole appointment is to be an undercover agent to trip you up or to find something about you or your life that they can accuse you publicly. Can you imagine that? That's what our Lord dealt with in Jerusalem. Here are these Pharisees hounding him. He can't even go have a private meeting with a blind man, once blind man, without the Pharisees being there. And so they asked him the question, we're not blind too, are we? That's a sneering question, by the way. They're not honestly inquiring. So... Would you call us blind by chance? That's not the intent. It's asked in such a way as to demand a no, uh, a no answer. Certainly you would not suggest that we, the leaders and teachers, the doctors, the lawyers, the studiers of the law, we who have memorized the law, certainly you would not suggest that we of all people would be blind. Do you think the Pharisees understood what Jesus was getting at? He understood what they were getting at. Here was a man worshiping him who was once blind, and Jesus said, I've come into the world so that the blind may see, like this man. And then I can imagine Jesus looking up at the Pharisees and saying, and so that those who see might be made blind. 
You're not calling us blind, certainly. Notice the indignation. You know what's curious about people's reaction to truth? I've noticed this sometimes in sharing the gospel and listening to the gospel be shared. I've noticed something. You can accuse people of the most hideous of sins, and they will confess to them almost joyfully, but when you suggest to somebody that they are blind to the truth and that they have a love for darkness, that's when they get indignant. You can ask somebody, have you ever told a lie? Oh, yeah, lied thousands of times. I lied all the time. I lied to my boss yesterday. Have you ever stolen anything? Oh, yeah, all the time. You're blaspheming God's name? Every day. Commit adultery? No, I'm not. I'm good with that one. How about lust? Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, you commit adultery of the heart. Oh, yeah, porn every day, every night. I'm a, I'm a luster. I've lusted 15 times since I stood here having this conversation with you. They confess to all of that, but then you say to them, look, you are a spiritually blind person living in darkness. You know what they'll do? Hey, Jack, it's on now. They, they want to go after you. Why? Because you have really got at the heart of the issue. They will confess the most hideous of sins, but you suggest to somebody that they are spiritually blind, and you will face their indignation. That is exactly what the Pharisees are how they're responding here. Are you calling us blind? Right? He could have called them lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterers at heart. But when he called them blind, wow. Boy, they hated him for that. And that's really the issue of all of John 9. That's why they resisted him so much, is because they refused to admit that they were blind. Certainly, we are not blind too. Are we? Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, they were. Now notice Jesus' answer, and this is where the miracle reveals to us the consequence of unbelief. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Now it's a bit of a sort of a mysterious statement, and we kind of break it apart. Admittedly, it's a bit difficult to understand until we start to kind of examine it a bit, and then I think the meaning of what Jesus is getting at will become clear. When they asked him, we're not blind also, are we? with that sort of sneering indignation, when they asked that question, they were probably expecting a straightforward yes or no answer. But you'll notice that Jesus doesn't give them a straightforward yes or no answer. What does He give them? He gives them the answer. He answers their question. You're going to see it in a moment. He answers their question, but not directly. Instead, He answers it in such a way as to almost hide the truth of the answer from them. It's a bit of a puzzle that they have to sort of figure out to get what it is that He is driving at. This is part of the judicial hardening of God. You know why Jesus spoke in parables? So that believers could understand them and unbelievers couldn't. That's why. Why did Jesus answer these men this way? So that hearing it, they would not even hear it. It's enigmatic. You and I can sort of piece it together, but they're going to figure out what it is. Let's take it apart a bit. Verse 41. Verse 41. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. Now, is He suggesting there that they're not blind? You'll notice that in verse 41, there is a contrast between them being blind, if you were blind, and them thinking or professing that they see. That's the key. The end, that end phrase, but you say we see. That's the key to understanding what Jesus is saying. So here is how we should take it. If you were blind, by that Jesus means this. If you were to confess, to admit that you are a blind person. If you were willing to come to me and say, We are poor, wretched, miserable, hopeless, spiritually blind beggars. We have no righteousness. We know nothing. Teach us. We are helpless. We need a physician. We're sick. We're sinners and we're wretches. If you were willing to admit that you are blind, then what? You would have no sin. Isn't that what salvation does? 
Isn't that how you got saved? You first had to admit, I am a wretched sinner. I deserve nothing but the wrath of God. You first have to admit that you are blind before you will seek a remedy for your blindness. They were not willing to admit that they were blind. They were convinced they could see. They were convinced that they need no physician. Nobody to heal them of their blindness. We don't need that. What He offers, we do not need. Because we are the teachers of Israel. We know the truth. We see the truth. We practice the truth. We have our own righteousness. All of the people look up to us. We do not need sight. Because we are not blind. And Jesus is saying, if you were to admit that you were blind. In other words, if you confess that you are blind, if you were blind, and you knew that, and you confessed that, and you came on those terms, you would have no sin. All of your sin would be forgiven. But since you say, we see, since you are not willing to confess that you are blind, since you insist that you see, then obviously your sin remains. Can somebody be saved from sin if they do not feel the weight of their sin? Can somebody be saved from it? They won't be. They won't be. That's why you use the law to bring about the knowledge of sin in evangelism. Somebody who does not know and feel the weight of their sin will never seek a remedy for it. Just like the person who walks into a doctor's office and does not believe that they have any illness or any problem will not take a cure that is offered to them. And until somebody is convinced that they need the cure, they will not pursue the cure. Jesus didn't come to heal the the well. It's the sick who need a physician. And He came for them. But the people who insist that they do not need a Savior will not find one. Because Jesus is not going to save people from sin that they don't even aren't even aware that they have. So the individual who wants to come to Christ because he wants a better life or he wants this or he wants that out of the Gospel, those people will not be saved from their sin because they have not felt the weight of their sin. This is why churches who do not preach the reality of sin and the wrath of God do people a terrible injustice. You cannot just simply tell people, if you want a better life, come to Jesus and invite Him into your heart. That doesn't work. It can't work. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't save us to a better life. He saves us from our what? Our sin. And until somebody feels the weight of that sin, they will not pursue Christ. Not on the terms that Christ offers Himself. They will pursue Him for a hundred things that He does not offer to them, but they will never pursue Him as Savior. If you insist that you cannot see, then you will find no need for a physician. You will not pursue the physician. And your sin will remain. And the, the heaviest words in this whole passage are those. Your sin remains. That's it. it is your sin is still on you. You are still under judgment. Still under condemnation. For this, for judgment, I have come into the world. And here's the judgment that these who have turned away from the truth and have seen Him offer Himself as Savior insist that they can see and turn away from it. And this is their judgment. The sin remains on them. They are still under their sin because they have no sin bearer. They do not have a Savior who offers them forgiveness. So here we get to the end of John chapter 9. And listen, this is, this is a solemn warning for everybody in this church. You and me and everybody sitting here. This is the solemn warning. If you believe that you do not need a Savior, your sin will remain on you. Only until you feel the weight of your sin will you pursue a Savior and seek forgiveness. If you confess that you are blind, miserable, naked, poor, wretched sinner, your sin can be dealt with. It can be taken away when you feel the weight of it. But if you will not confess that, there is no hope for you. There's no hope for you. You cannot be saved until you feel the weight of your sin and seek after a Savior. Now notice the difference in responses between John 8 and John 9. We have people who profess to be believers in John 8, 
Jesus revealed who he was, and they picked up stones to stone him. We have a true believer in John 9. When Jesus revealed who he was, he worshipped him. Because this man in John 9 was aware of his blindness, he felt the weight of his blindness, and he came and he knew he needed to be forgiven. And his eyes now have been opened by a sovereign act of God. His eyes have been opened to both his physical condition and his spiritual condition, and he has received a remedy for both of them, the physical condition and the spiritual condition. Do you as a believer oftentimes feel the weight or the gravity of your own sin? Sometimes feel overwhelmed by it? I have to confess to you, I do. I mean, when I first got saved, I thought I was overwhelmed by the, the gravity of my own sin, but I came to believe, I came to realize as I have grown over the years, that what I, what I saw for sin in me when I first got saved is nothing of the reality of it. It's not even the tip of the iceberg. It's not even a snowflake on, on Schweitzer. It's just, it's just it's a small amount of it, and it grieved my heart then. But then as we continue in sanctification, you know what happens? We start to sin less and less as we grow in holiness. But listen, what happens is I feel the weight of the burden of my sin more and more. So though my sins get less over time, the burden that I feel over those sins increases over time. Because as I pursue holiness, I realize how wretched I really am. How wretched I was when God saved me. And how wretched I continue to be as I fall short of His standard. So let me say something to you. If you as a believer feel the weight of your sin, there is good news. There is hope for that. Because we find a remedy in the person of Christ. We are a great sinners. But we know that Christ is a great Savior from sins. The only time you ought to feel hopeless is if you feel no gravity over your sin whatsoever. You feel you do not feel the weight of your sin at all. Then you are hopeless. If you're in a position where you do not think that you need a Savior and you do not think you need a remedy, that's that's when you're in trouble. But when you and I get to the point of realizing, man, I am without hope and I need a Savior desperately, that's the person that Christ came to save. Those are the people who truly have hope. But that hope is in Christ and in nothing else. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.